Hey guys, this is Will, and welcome to Latinx Talks. Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of Latinx Talks. I'm excited to present to you this week uh, Dr. Julian Vasquez-Heilig. He's currently the Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at California State University in Sacramento. We're going to be covering some very interesting topics on this episode revolving around education. We'll be talking about public schools versus charter schools, educational achievement gaps. So if you know an educator or an aspiring educator, please share this episode with them. As always, thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Please make sure to share this episode as well as other episodes of Latinx Talks and do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn at Latinx Talks. Have a great week and enjoy. I'm Professor Julian Vasquez Heilig. currently live in Sacramento, California. Um, I grew up in Michigan, uh, the state that looks like a mitten. Typically when people tell you that um, they're from Michigan, what they'll do is they'll show you their hand and they'll point out on their hand uh, where they're from because the state, of course, looks like a hand. So um, if you were to explain to somebody where I was from, if I was to do that, uh, I'm from Lansing, Michigan, which is right about the middle of your palm uh, if you were using your hand as a map. So I grew up in in Lansing, in the south side of town, um, near uh, Miller and what's now called Martin Luther King Road. And, um, you know, I I went to school uh, in in Lansing and um, uh, for many years, I, you know, I lived on the south side of Lansing in uh, uh, public subsidized housing. Uh, the kind of place where if you put your boots on the porch, uh, they wouldn't be there in a couple of hours if you left them out there. So <laughs> wow, true story. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, true story. So don't leave your boots on the porch. Got it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, you know, but it was, a, you know, I had a, um, you know, I didn't have a tumultuous uh, upbringing, uh, nice lower middle class um, upbringing. And um, I ended up uh, after high school and after elementary school attending the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. So just down the road, about 75 miles uh, from Lansing, uh, is the University of Michigan. Um, incidentally, uh, or maybe not incidentally, uh, both my parents attended the University of Michigan too. Okay. Uh, my father ended up graduating from Michigan State. Um, after attending Michigan for four years uh, because he wanted to change his major. But so, um, you know, I ended up uh, at the University of Michigan, um, you know, and, and sort of an interesting story. You know, when you apply to a, a college, you kind of know that you got good news when you get the, you know, the big, uh, the big envelope. Right. Uh, you get the postcard, it's usually bad news. So uh, when I got into Michigan, I got the big packet and, my mom was really excited. She was, um, you know, but she was telling me, you know, you can go to college wherever you want to go. You don't have to choose the college that I went to. Um, and uh, so I didn't, she's, there's no pressure is what she said. Mm-hmm. Then um, maybe two or three weeks later, I, I got a letter in the mail and I, I almost overlooked it because it was just a regular size, you know, business sized envelope. Um, there was 
uh, a handwritten, my name was handwritten on the front. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was from the University of Michigan. And I opened it up. I, you know, I wondered what it was. I wasn't really expecting anything. And the letter said that they were going to give me a full scholarship for four years. Wow, that's pretty cool. Absolute shock. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was a National Merit Commended Scholar and, you know, was in the top five in my class and, you know, was an athlete and, you know, was the editor of the school newspaper, but I didn't, it was a shock. And so my mother started crying and she started calling all the family. <laughs> and when she was finished with that, she said, oh, but there's no pressure. You can, you can choose, you know, whatever school you want to choose for college. <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um, so the University of Michigan at the time had this recruiting weekend where they brought in all the students of color that they were, um, have admitted from all over the United States. And most, most of the folks there, most of the students, their prospective students were uh, from Michigan, uh, Michiganians, I guess uh, <laughs> they're called. Okay. Uh, and so I went to that, that event and, um, and I may, you know, I just made some incredible uh, relationships um, and, you know, uh, that's really what convinced me to go. I didn't want to, go because that's where my mom and my dad had gone to school and my whole life you know growing up we would drive to Ann Arbor to this little sports shop called Moe's Sports Shop and they would buy uh, the the right size t-shirt for whatever age I was we'd go to the big house so you know it was something that I had I had grown up with you know uh, was sort of the being in the Michigan family but I didn't want to decide to go to college you know because of where my parents had gone but you know, I just fell in love with the place. Um, and I, I might be the, the biggest Michigan fan on the planet. I'm, I'm headed to three football games this this fall. And I live in California, so <laughs> headed to Notre Dame, headed to Nebraska, and um, headed to um, uh, Penn State. So, you know, I had a good college experience. And so after college, um, I decided that uh, I wanted to apply for grad school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I, I've, I'd always been interested in children. Um, and, you know, growing up, uh, driving to school, my dad would listen to uh, NPR. He listened to politics on the radio. Mm-hmm. So I'd always kind of been I'd always been interested in politics because it was what I listened to every day, um, you know, when my, my dad would drop me off at school. And um, so I really wanted to do a mixture of politics and, and, and education. And so. I ended up applying to Harvard, I applied to Michigan, and I applied to Berkeley uh, to get an education policy master's, really that mixture of education and, and politics. Hmm. And um, I got into Harvard, and I got into Michigan, but I actually didn't get into Berkeley. Um, and so I had to decide, do I want to go to Harvard, did I want to go to Michigan? And I thought to myself, man, you know, I'm still 20. 21. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want to be that far away from home. So I, I ended up going, saying yes to Michigan. And um, I did a year in the Ford School of Public Policy at Michigan and a year in the higher education program at Michigan. Um, and, you know, completed my master's uh, at Michigan too. My parents thought I was crazy. They thought, you know, you should have, you should have gone to, you, should, you know, like my mother was like, Miho, you should have gone to, uh, should have gone to Harvard. But I, I, I decided to stay home. And Actually, the year I worked on my master's, Michigan won the national championship in football. Uh-huh. And I went to the Rose Bowl. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I got the master's degree and I got that incredible sort of uh, 
exciting experience. Then um, after masters, I ended up in Texas actually. Um, what part of Texas? Uh, Houston. Houston, okay. And uh, the reason why I ended up in Houston was because at the time, Michigan, uh, uh, Texas was saying that they were having an education miracle, mm-hmm. that they'd close the achievement gaps, that they had high schools that had 0% dropout rates. And at the time, they were calling it a Texas miracle. And Rod Page, who was the superintendent of the Houston School District, was sort of the leader of this education miracle. George W. Bush, of course, who was governor at the time mm-hmm. uh, when he ran for president, talked a lot about the Texas education miracle. And so what ended up happening is George Bush was elected president and Rod Page was selected as his secretary of education and No Child Left Behind uh, was the signature education legislation, the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act that was originally from um, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society back in the 1960s. Every president gets to reauthorize that education law and that was uh, George W. Bush's uh, reauthorization of that law. But a lot of what was said during the campaign and a lot of what was said about the Texas education miracle I knew was false because working in the Houston school district behind the scenes, uh, the numbers weren't adding up to what we were telling the public. There was no way that we had dropout rates of 0% in our urban high schools. We hadn't closed the achievement gap. And one of the ways that we had done that was at the time, high school kids had to take a 10th grade test to graduate from high school. And that was the accountability uh, metric that was used. So what was happening was the district was grade retaining kids in the ninth grade so that they never took the 10th grade tests, which meant that the scores were artificial. They weren't real. And it also meant that those kids never had a chance to graduate because they never took the test that they were required to pass to graduate. And that was primarily affecting Latino kids in in Houston and primarily affecting African-American kids. And later, researchers found that the Texas miracle was a facade. It was really just like Enron, which was a very popular and prominent company in Houston at the time. They basically Enron-tized this data, which had had really harmful effects on Latino kids and African-American kids uh, in Texas and in Houston more specifically. And that's what sent me to Stanford uh, to get my PhD. Um, And I ended up writing my dissertation about what I'd experienced in Texas and how, um, uh, you know, keeping those kids from testing, how the, what, what the actual impact was on, on those kids and what the actual impact was on this sort of facade of success. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's just sort of like a quick, you know, background, a little bit about my my experience, you know, in, in higher education, and then, then my first sort of position um, in Houston, and then you know w- what drove me to go to Stanford so that I could understand and describe um, in my research, and also for you know for the public, what was really going on with education reform in Texas at the time. Wow. Okay. Now, as far as what you were able to see then versus now, have you seen any kind of um improvement progress you know progress in in that department of of mending that gap you know that's a that's an important question you know i clearly our education system has had successes uh you one thing you can point to is that the graduation rate has been inching up um there are folks out there that are say our graduation rate is at an all-time high 
there are some critiques of, of that graduation rate. I, I won't go into all the specifics, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's one thing we can definitely point to. Um, I think another thing we can point to is that if you look at the the NAEP, which is uh, the National Assessment of Education Progress, it's an international exam, uh, our national exam, excuse me, it's our national exam. And um, you, if you look at that, you'll see that um, students of today are performing uh, better than students of two or three decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so students of today are actually smarter uh, than they were in the past. Now, of course, that's probably not what you're going to hear from the media. Uh, you're probably not going to hear that from education reformers. Um, but students of today are actually performing better than they were a decade ago and two decades ago. Now, that being said, that progress for Latinos, African-Americans, and really most students has had has ground to a halt. It's a, a much flatter improvement over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think part of that is that we have been so focused on, we were so focused on No Child Left Behind. We've been so focused on things like charter schools and vouchers that we haven't been focused on improving the success of, of students writ large mm-hmm. uh, in ways that we know in the research literature um, uh, have the most impact. And so I, I really think that this the slowing down of, the st- of student success overall that you see in, in the NAEP um, really can be attributed to a decade of education reform, whether it be No Child Left Behind and you know, endless amounts of high-stakes testing for kids or even this march towards a, a privately managed system of education via charters and vouchers. Um, education reform has really slowed down the growth uh, across the United States relative to the last couple of years. And there was a really interesting research study just out last week mm-hmm. showing that No Child Left Behind it really has really, really slowed our improvement. Now, when it comes to specifically Latinos and, and African-American students, um, is has there been this like, like a drastic difference among the that those particular policies being targeted towards those groups or, or not really? The No Child Left Behind, the, the crux of No Child Left Behind was was called accountability. And the idea was that if we tested kids, and in some cases, like for example, in Texas, there was a point where the state of Texas was up to 15 exams uh, to graduate from high school. And so, you know, across the nation, there was a big pushback, um, the opt-out of testing movement where parents would not allow their kids to be subjected to these batteries of high stakes exams. Um, and so there was really a gaining momentum uh, against um these tests, but No Child Behind was based on these exams. And the real big challenge with these exams um, is that uh, they perverted what was happening uh, in schools because everything became focused on getting kids to improve their test scores by any means necessary, whether it be worksheets, firing teachers if they didn't have particular test scores. And the thing is that we know that these exams are, are highly discriminatory towards students uh, that are low income versus high income. I mean, you can, there are many exams and uh, Roxana Marachi at San Jose State University has done some interesting work on this showing that you can predict what a kid is gonna score in a test using statistical, very statistical methods before the kid even takes the test. Wow. The tests are highly dependent on whether you have a, 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 whether you're poor or whether you're not poor. 
Um, and so what No Child Left Behind did was, is it said, okay, we're going to use these exams and we're going to tell you all the schools that are failing. And then we're either going to close them, turn them around or turn them into charter schools. Um, and, and that was actually required if, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a school uh, was, had issues with what they called at the time AYP, Adequate Yearly Progress, several years in a row. Um, and so Latinos and African-Americans were primarily impacted by the school closures um, and um, you know, the influx of charter schools, whether it be in Dallas, Houston, Chicago, Los Angeles, it's primarily Latinos and African-Americans that have been affected by um, these school closures and affected by charter schools. And so, you know, the question, the next question that people wonder about is, well, did these things work? Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at the research on school closures, we find that there's more violence uh, in surrounding school closures that, especially in Chicago, that kids didn't, Latino kids, African-American kids, when they sent them to different schools, they didn't necessarily do better. Uh, their graduation rates weren't necessarily higher. Um, with charter schools, it's, it's, you know, the performance is all over the place. It's all over the map. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to watch TV or listen to your average political pundit, you would think that charter schools were the panacea, like this is the solution. But the performance of charter schools is it varies quite a bit regionally. It even varies within cities. So, for example, if you look at um, African-Americans in um, Houston and, and San Antonio, for example, they actually perform better in neighborhood schools than they do in charter schools in those two cities. Hmm. Uh, that's probably a fact that most folks in Houston and San Antonio don't know. Um, and I, I'm referencing uh, the recent, uh, the Credo study in 2015 uh, that studied um, charter school performance relative to neighborhood public schools um, in the largest cities across uh, the United States. So, um, you know, clearly, um, we and, and the thing about about this is we know the things that really are most impactful for Latino students, most impactful for other students of color. Um, those things are high quality teachers that are certified. We know that Latino kids are more likely to receive teachers who are underqualified and who are not certified uh, than non than than their white peers. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that high quality pre K. Um, has a huge impact, about 400% more impact on average than, say, charter schools. And that's using a teacher's college record um, meta-analysis of pre-K, comparing it to overall uh, results you, you see from charter schools in, in the recent Credo study. And, um, you know, other things are also important, like reducing the class size. It makes sense that a teacher that has 40 kids is going to have a much easier time a much more difficult time teaching than if they have 25 kids. I mean, that's just something that makes sense. But I think the real challenge is that as uh, you know, now, I don't know if you know this, but nationally, our K-12 schools are now majority minority as a whole across the nation. Now, that's been the case in several states for quite some time, you know, California and New Mexico and Texas. Mm -hmm. But if you look overall, um, uh, and of course, we, we, I, you're very well aware that there are more Latino students now in, in K-12 schools than there are African-American students. Uh, and they've, they're now the largest, quote unquote, minority group, even though they're the majority in K-12. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges is, is that as the numbers of Latino kids and African-Americans and Asian kids have grown in public schools, you've seen, comment, comment on to that, you've seen a 
a reduction of funding. Like in Texas, for example, several years ago, they cut billions of dollars from the budget. And my understanding for folks on the ground in Texas is that they still haven't replaced those monies to pre-recession levels. You see lawsuits, school finance lawsuits across the United States, because in most states, um, education is a guarantee in the state constitutions. Now, even though education is not guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution, mm -hmm. in most states, uh, there are uh, clauses that require high quality education for every kid in, in those states. So that's why you see lawsuits on a state by state basis. And, but our schools are still underfunded. Mm. Uh, you, you know, and there are some states that have more egregious funding issues than others. Texas is one of those. Fortunately, California is one of those, uh, Mississippi. But then you have high performing states who are also high public investment states like Wyoming. Um, you see New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts. A lot of these high spending states are also some of our high performing states. And there are very few countries in the world that actually perform better than those states when you look at math and science, for example. Okay. Massachusetts is only a couple of countries that perform better. So our education system clearly has some problems, but it's the inequalities for Latinos, African-Americans, and other students of color that are the big issues. Our public education system writ large is not a failure. There are clearly islands of excellence in states and in cities, but the inequality is that sort of third rail of education policy. Okay. Now, for those that are listening, I guess reeling it back a little bit to basics. For those that are listening, what is the the distincting distinctual differences between a charter school versus a public school? That's a great, great question. So a lot of people argue that charter schools are actually public schools, but let's unpack that for a minute. So let's think about the the Defense Department. Uh, so the Defense Department wants, let's say, Boeing to make them a warplane of some type. And so what they do is they take bids and then Boeing says, okay, if you give us these, the taxpayers dollars, then we will produce uh, an airplane for you. But I don't think anybody is going to argue that Boeing is a public company that is run by the people democratically. I, you know, I don't really think anybody would argue that. Now, what a charter school is, is a charter school is a private organization, whether it be, and, and that being said, there are some charter schools that are run by districts and some charter schools that are run by universities and these sorts of things. But the vast majority of charter schools are run by either for-profit or non-profit corporations. And those corporations receive public money uh, to provide, ed public taxpayer money to provide education. But those private corporations whether they be nonprofit or for-profit corporations, run the school. Now, the community in which those schools sit don't necessarily have any say in what happens in those schools. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Okay. So let's say a parent has an issue. Let's say Johnny was chewing gum in a class, or at least the teacher says Johnny was chewing gum in the class, but the parent disputes that. Mm -hmm. So in a charter school, um, you would talk to the teacher and the teacher would say, well, no, Johnny was chewing gum. Okay. Well, then you go to the principal and the principal might say, well, yeah, Johnny was chewing gum. And the principal says, no, Johnny was not chewing gum. Well, that's really the end of it in a charter school. A charter school will say, well, vote with your feet, choose somebody else. But if, if in a democratically controlled school, your local neighborhood school, you might say something to the, um, to the, to the teacher, that might not work. The principal, that might not work. Well, then you can go to your area superintendent if, if 
that's the case and if you're in a larger district, then you can go to your school board member, you can go to the superintendent. And if you're unhappy with the way the policy is structured or you feel like you've been treated unfairly, well, there's democratic recourse for that. You can complain to your school board member, get your community together, vote out the school board member, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no democratic recourse because we, the taxpayers, don't control what happens in charter schools. They're a market-based approach. And their argument is that, well, people will just vote with their feet. Um, and that's why uh, the, the charter schools, the neighborhood public schools are very, very different. It's a market mechanism um, because these are private and for-profit sometimes. for So for example, in my home state of Michigan, more than 80% of charter schools are for-profit. And that was because that's the way Betsy uh, DeVos wanted it. Uh, mm-hmm. Betsy DeVos, of course, now the U.S. Secretary of Education, has spent millions over the years supporting a for-profit and privatization of public tax dollars in education. And so the system that you see in Michigan, which has been called the least accountable schools and some of the most wasteful charter schools in the United States, um, some of the least democratically accountable schools because they're for-profit corporations that run them, that is the approach that the current Secretary of Education has has supported. Now, in California, where I live, uh, for-profit charter schools are actually officially illegal there are online charter schools that uh, operate here in California that are run by K-12 Inc. under the name Kava that are actually for profit. And the way they get around that is typically, uh, at least what I've heard, is that the principals work for the for profit and then the teachers will work for the nonprofit arm of the organization. And so they have ways around the ban on for profit schools out here. Mm, so, okay. so the bottom line is this, is that um, charter schools, in my, in my estimation, the way I think about what public means, they're not public schools. They're privately managed schools that use public dollars, like a defense contractor would. What would even be the the benefit of tailoring a public school towards a charter school? If it's something that people don't people don't have a say in it um, once it rolls into that. I think it's important to understand where first understand where school choice came from, where the idea came from. Um, no. Milton Friedman, who was a, a white professor at uh, the University of Chicago in the 1950s, wrote a book about school vouchers. But essentially, his idea was that markets should control schools uh, and that schools should be run by private operators and they shouldn't be run by the public. They shouldn't be large districts that basically these small that private schools and privately operated schools should put public school districts out of business. That was the core belief. Um, And so over time, what's been interesting about this is that, uh, and this is probably what you hear about charter schools, that, you know, and maybe even vouchers, is that we have to do this because brown and black children have not had opportunities to attend high quality schools and that there's a government monopoly and I should be able to choose. Now, those ideas have been retrograded added later to these ideas about uh, creating privately managed schools to put democratically controlled schools out of business, just take them out of the picture. Now, more recently, Betsy DeVos and some of these other folks have argued, well, we should just have all types of schools. But that's not the eventual outcome of charter schools and vouchers, because what you see in California and a lot of other states, even my home uh, school district, uh, my, my parents' home school district, excuse me, Saginaw Buena Vista, the only schools that exist now are for-profit and nonprofit charter schools in their community. They don't have a school district anymore mm. because a lot of people aren't thinking about 
what happens down the road as charter schools and voucher schools uh, proliferate? What happens is, is that districts lose their economy of scale. Um, as students leave, um, they're not able to provide bus services and they're not able to provide um, food services and all the things that um, districts have been able to do for children. As they lose kids, they become financially insolvent. And that's what you're seeing in Oakland. You see a recent report in Los Angeles, for example, $500 million um, is now being pulled out of the budget in LA Unified uh, and being sent uh, to charter schools. So what we haven't really talked about is, so while we talk about like, well, well, charters are this and they're that and they're not this and they're not that, what we haven't talked about is the fact that as we go down this path, that school districts are gonna go bankrupt. Mm. And so then there won't really be a choice. The only choice will be charter schools um, and you know, and some charter schools have preferential admission. So, like for example, I can decide that I want to go to uh, Texas A&M, or I can decide that I want to go to Florida State University. But that choice is a two-way street. They also have to choose me. So it's not only do I choose them, but they have to choose me. And so a lot of people assume that if they get, for example, a school voucher, and what a school voucher is. It's a cousin to charter schools, but essentially what it is, is the, the state gives you a pot of money um, to go to a private school. Typically, it's not enough to cover the entire bill at the private school. So you not only have to have that money, but you have to often, you know, your family has to find the other several thousand dollars to actually attend that school. Um, but a private school can decide whether they want you to attend or not. Uh, they determine that. Um, and so you, you can call it school choice, but choice is school choice is actually that. It's in, especially in the voucher context, the schools get to do the choosing. They choose whether you can attend or not. You can't just decide to go to Texas A&M or go to Florida State and right. go. It's, it's a two-way choice. And so the way this applies to charter schools is oftentimes there are charter schools that have specific, well, they can act like, like magnet schools. They might be focused on string instruments or they might be focused on the classics, et cetera. And so they can have criteria that you have to um, um, uh, you know, meet to get, to get into them. And then one other thing I'll say about this is that oftentimes charter schools have a set of policies. So for example, in California, the ACLU found that charter schools were requiring parents uh, to volunteer. Now, if they couldn't volunteer, then they could pay money uh, to the school directly in lieu of volunteer hours. Now, um, if you're a poor a parent that has three jobs and doesn't have much money, then you wouldn't be able to attend that charter school because the charter school had put these illegal policies in play. And they, so you actually found that one in every five charter schools had policies similar to this, even though officially they're illegal in California. And so that's another way that what charter schools can cream and crop students by using various policies, including these volunteer policies. They also use discipline policies. They also use the fact that they're not offering um, high, you know, various types of special ed accommodations to students, even though theoretically that's illegal, because if they're public schools, then under IDEA, they have to offer those accommodations. But mm -hmm. we find that special ed kids are much less likely to attend charter schools than neighborhood public schools. And so there's a variety of ways that school choice becomes exactly that. The schools can do the choosing. Mm. Now, do you see a, a, a huge push to get all the schools towards a charter concept? You know, I think everyone agrees that we want to have schools, uh, whether they be charter schools or whether they be neighborhood public schools that are innovative, that are mm -hmm. offering 
um, you know, high quality STEM or STEAM, or, you know, one of the interesting things in Miami uh, that Superintendent uh, Carvalho did there was he created a magnets that had all different sorts of uh, sort of unique focus uh, uh, so that parents had different sort of innovative opportunities um, to choose uh, for their students. So I think, I think everybody uh, is pretty much in agreement that we want uh, families to have different opportunities. But I think where that sort of disagreement lies is whether the public should have a say in what happens in, in, with their public tax dollars mm-hmm. or whether those tax dollars should be privatized, privately managed, and whether there should be the opportunity to profit off of children uh, in, in using public dollars. So I think everyone agrees on sort of the innovation part. I think where, who controls that innovation and where that innovation lies I think that's where a lot of that um, debate is occurring. Gotcha. Yeah, because I mean, I get the sense that if if a school, I, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm thinking the analogy that you gave with colleges, where you know you, you ultimately have to pay into a college to be able to get accepted. Um, if if charter schools are tailored in the same way, then if the push goes towards making more and more charter schools and minimizing public schools then what in the worst case scenario what happened to those families that can't afford to pay for their child to go to a charter school it's a great question so we actually have some answers to that so remember i told the story about milton freeman the professor from the university of chicago in the 1950s mm-hmm. well um uh, pinochet who was a dictator in chile uh he recruited uh what were called the Chicago Boys, some Chileans that had studied at the University of Chicago to apply this sort of market-based approach for every kid in the country of Chile. And so now Chile has been using a market-based approach for quite some time. And so there are a couple of, I mean, there's a lot of things in the research literature that we've learned about Chile using this sort of market-based approach where every kid has a quote-unquote choice um, to choose. And, there, there's a, and I'll, I'll just give you a couple of them. You know, I invite your readers to sort of do some background work. You can, actually, if you ever want to sort of dig into research, mm-hmm. just go to Google Scholar um, okay. and type in, you know, whatever topic you're interested in and interesting research will come up. You know, you, you can, you can do your own sort of research projects using Google Scholar. It's a really cool tool. So you can just go to Google Scholar, type in Chile vouchers, student success, these sorts of things. So what happened in Chile was it increased the stratification of kids. So yes, some kids, some poor kids were offered opportunities to go to better schools. But what happened was, is the schools put in a set of, of, of rules for them to be able to get into other schools. So you needed a certain test score to get into a better school. So what happened was, is you actually had greater concentrations of, and SES is the, you know, the sort of defining stratifying factor in, in, um, in Chile you saw these greater intensifications of rich and poor in schools and and actually less integration of of kids from different economic backgrounds. Mm. Uh, You you also saw, for example, recently Chile realized after a couple of decades that for-profit schools were just not cutting it uh, and that they weren't doing well and that they were basically taking advantage of of public resources. And so there was protests Uh, about how the system was operating. And so one of the responses from policymakers in Chile was to phase out for-profit schools, right? So here in the United States, decades later, we're headed towards for-profit schools. We're a country like Chile where where they're one of the most unequal societies in the world. 
uh, and where their student achievement has been flat for decades compared to countries like um, Finland that have gone with a public investment model instead of a school choice market-based model. The, the market-based model in Chile has had very clear stratifying problematic effects for poor kids and has uh, you know, been concurrent with incredible economic inequality and um, uh, you know, co the concentration of poor kids in very specific schools uh, in, in, in low SES, low, in, in poor, poor neighborhoods. So we actually don't have to guess what will happen when, every, when we're using a market-based system instead of a public investment-based system focused, focused on equity. We actually don't have to guess. You, you know, there's a really interesting book by Linda Darling Hammond and Frank Adamson, where they make comparisons between a place like Sweden and Finland, who are very similar to each other. Sweden went the market-based school choice route, whereas Finland went the equity uh, public investment model. And Finland shot to the top of international comparisons, and Sweden lagged behind. And so you you can make these sorts of comparisons between the market-based uh, approach and the public investment approach. And it's very clear. I mean, even if you look in the United States, uh, you can compare states uh, like Massachusetts uh, with state with, with, with other states uh, like Arizona. You know, Arizona has focused on the market-based approaches uh, and a place like Massachusetts, which is focused on the public investment approach. Uh, and you can see the dramatic differences in the success rates of students in, in places like Arizona compared to Massachusetts. Wow. So as a, as a parent, what can what can parents do um, if they if they see this happening in their neighborhoods or in their, their school districts? What can parents do to to try to, you know, have their voice heard and, and seeing the, the fact that that causes more disparities between the yeah. groups? What, what, can, yeah. what, can, what can be done? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, much of education reform over the last decade or so has been focused on top down approaches to education and oftentimes run by people that are not from the communities. Um, uh, I think New Orleans is a prime example of this, where they imported all these education reformers into New Orleans to implement this, uh, a model that where there's no choice. Um, essentially no choice in New Orleans. You have to choose a charter school. They closed all the most, the vast majority of neighborhood public schools closed wow. uh, after Katrina. So there's no, cho your only choice there is a charter school. And so they imported all these education reformers from out of town uh, to implement this charter school private management approach there. Now, I, I, the alternative to education reform that is top down and about privatization and private control is community-based education reform. And so for every uh, education reform that is run by outsiders and is about profit and or private control, there is a community-based alternative. So one of the really, uh, one of the really uh, important uh, alternatives to charter schools are what are called community schools. Community schools are schools that are more engaged with, what's, uh, with, with communities. They're focused on wraparound services to address the needs of challenges of students. You can't just expect by changing the governance or who runs the school that you will remedy the challenges of immigrant students, that you remedy the challenges that refugee students have, that you remedy the challenges of poverty. You actually have to provide the services to meet the needs of kids that come to your school. 
And so community schools is one way, um, one, one alternative um, to uh, charter schools. Um, also thinking about community districts as an, as an alternative to district takeover. Instead of, of you know, uh, teacher evaluation systems that are focused on having statisticians sitting in their university offices calculating regression models and hierarchical linear models, focused on having expert teachers, local expert consultant teachers, evaluating um, uh, the uh, curriculum and pedagogy of the teachers in your community. So there are community-based educational reform solutions that are about community empowerment and democratic control. We don't have to be focused on education reforms that are about ex outsiders that are focused on privatization and private control of, of, of neighborhood schools. So that would be my recommendation is start digging into what are the community-based alternatives out there uh, to education reform that are not focused on profit and privatization. Now, earlier off air, you did also mention that you currently have a podcast as well. Um, now, is, is your podcast revolving around education and education it reform? It is. It's actually only about uh, an organization called Teach for America. So what Teach for America does, are you, are you familiar with Teach for America? I'm not actually. I was going to ask you if you could give uh, myself and our listeners a little more information about what Teach for America is. So what Teach for America does is they take recent college graduates, primarily recent college graduates, sometimes there's some non-traditional candidates, and they train them for a summer. Um, they give them about 30 hours of classroom experience, mm -hmm. typically in summer school with 10 to 20 students in the classroom, so a more laid back setting. And then they, then they throw them into the fire. They send them to the, some of the most difficult, most challenging situations in urban districts and rural schools across the United States. So essentially, uh, you know, would you get on an, let's, okay, so I fly a lot. Mm -hmm. Would you get on an airplane? If you went into the airplane and you talked to the pilot and the pilot said, and you asked the pilot, well, so how long have you been flying? And he said, uh, about five weeks. And then you <laughs> asked him, well, how much time have you actually had training uh, to fly this plane? And he told you about 30 hours. How comfortable would you feel getting on that airline? Probably not very much. <laughs> would you feel comfortable? Uh, not at all. <laughs> right. So, well, okay, let's not even use the plane as an example. Let's, let's use cutting hair. Okay, so mm -hmm. everyone's gone to the barber, everyone's gone to the salon, right? So what if the, um, the cosmetologist cutting your hair, or the barber cutting your hair, what if they told you they had trained to become a barber for five weeks in the summer, but they'd actually only cut hair for about 25 hours? Would you feel comfortable getting a haircut from that person? Um, I would be a little leery depending on the complexity. <laughs> right, of course, right. Yeah, yeah. So cosmetologists have more requirements in most states uh, to work on people's hair than, than Teach for America's uh, core members have before they start teaching children in our most difficult classrooms across the United States is, wow. is the main point. Mm -hmm. and so, um, and Teach for America, uh, you know, is has hundreds of millions of dollars given to them by this a cabal of what are called the policy patrons. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. There are large foundations that support this 
education reform that's very focused on private control of education. There, the Walton Family Foundation, the Eli Broad Foundation, the John Arnold Foundation, which is out of Texas. Um, it, you see a lot of these uh, think tanks, such as the Cato Institute, uh, the, uh, the Friedman Foundation, they're part of a broader cabal of folks that are involved with this um, uh, research, politics, and education reform. It's sort of an intermingling of all of those things. And there's research out there that shows that Teach for America is the, one of the primary nodes in this network of folks that are supporting the privatization and private control of education in the United States. So Teach for America core members, they've gone out and started some of the largest charter networks uh, in the United States. They're really the foot soldiers of the education reform movement. Mm. Uh, and so the podcast that I have, it's called Truth for America about Teach for America. We bring on uh, folks that are either stakeholders or principals that have interacted with Teach for America, former Teach for America core members, folks who are, were in the core uh, current Teach for America teachers, and they just talk about their experiences mm -hmm. with education reform. They talk about their experiences with the organization. You can listen to it on iTunes. It's called Truth for America podcast. Perfect. And definitely we'll make sure to um, advertise that as well. Now, if they want to, do you have any like published documents or published papers or things online that people that want to know more about it in layman terms I can go to? Uh, you know, if you want sort of the layman's perspective, I, I have a blog. It's been read in more than 190 countries by nearly a million folks. It's called Cloaking Inequity. Uh, the reason why it's called Cloaking Inequity is because I think so often inequality is hidden in public policy and specifically education policy. So while on the one hand we're saying that charter schools are great for these kids, they're more segregated, uh, charter schools... Um, I should say it this way. Charter schools essentially take a lot of the problems that we already have in our neighborhood public schools and make them even worse. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they're more likely uh, to have uh, uh, punitive disciplinary approaches towards African-American and Latino kids. They're more segregated than our neighborhood public schools. Our nation is already highly segregated. Mm -hmm. uh, I just finished a recent paper for a journal, a peer-reviewed journal, Urban Education, that shows that charters across the United States, whether you look at the national level, the state level, or even the local level, city level, that charters are even more segregated than our traditional public schools. And like we talked about earlier, students don't necessarily do better in charter schools on average uh, than they do in neighborhood public schools. And that's not to say that there aren't great charter schools. And that's also not to say that there aren't great neighborhood public schools. We can mm -hmm. all probably think a number of those right off the top of our head. But the real challenge is that on average, charter schools are accentuating the problems that we already have in our neighborhood public schools. And so the, I think what we as a society have to think about is how do we uh, create more transparency and accountability for public dollars and on, on behalf of the kids that attend these schools. So I talk about that work extensively on cloaking inequity um, you know, feel free to connect with me on Twitter. If there are things that you heard that you disagree with, things that you heard um, that you agree with, reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, Professor JVH, those are my three initials, Julian Vasquez Heilig. Uh, if you want to really dig in, uh, you can go to Google Scholar, just type in my name, Julian Vasquez Heilig, and you can get access to some of the 
uh, peer-reviewed scientific work that we've we've done on school choice and accountability and testing. So so definitely reach out to me um, on Twitter. Check out the blog, Cloaking Inequity. I'm, I'm always up for a, a good conversation. Great. Thank you so much for your time. And for those that are listening, um, we have been speaking with Professor and Dr. Julian Vasquez-Heilig. Uh, he's currently Professor for Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at California State University in Sacramento. Um, Julian, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And, uh, and definitely, uh, this is something that's worth for all parents, obviously, and, and even non-parents to continue to uh, want to learn more about and, and, and push towards making sure that we're setting up our children and our future children uh, for success in the future. So thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please do not forget to share it on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Latinx Talks.